Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, friends, good morning. My name is Henrik Urdal, and I'm the director here at the Peace Research Institute Oslo, PRIO. I'm very pleased to wish you a warm welcome to PRIO uh, and to this event on Mexico and Norway in the UN Security Council Achievements and Legacies, co-hosted by the Mexican Embassy in Oslo, and we're grateful to Ambassador Conchola for this collaboration. PRIO is an independent, international, and interdisciplinary research institute specializing in peace and conflict research. In our role as an academic institution, our primary contribution is the production of rigorous academic analysis. However, our aim is that this effort shall have an impact beyond academia, facilitating knowledge-based policymaking grounded in information, analysis, and facts. During Norway's recent period on the Security Council, PRIA hosted, together with NUPI, a series of roundtable discussions bringing together researchers and MFA staff to discuss topics of great relevance to Norway's agenda in the Council. Mexico and Norway both served as non-permanent members of the UN Security Council for the period 2021 to 2022. This is the third time our two countries have served on the Council together, and Mexico and Norway have historically shared common interests in a number of issues uh, in international politics. The discussion today will focus on the ability of small states to influence the UN Security Council and identify challenges and opportunities Mexico and Norway faced when advancing various initiatives. And I'm particularly grateful and honored that Norway's ambassador during the period on the Council, Mona Jul, joins us here today. The event will be led by PRIO Deputy Director Togen Tryggestad, who also heads the PRIO Center on Gender, Peace and Security, or GPS. The 1325 Agenda on Women, Peace and Security has long been central both to PRIO and the Norwegian government, and was a priority area during Norway's term on the Council. On that note, I shall leave it in your able hands to take it from here, Togen, and welcome. Thank you so much, uh, Henrik. Uh, actually, early this year, we were approached by uh, representatives from the Mexican Embassy and Ambassador Conchola. Uh, he was actually suggesting a, an event like this. But we are all, both institutions have been very busy, so we've been planning back and forth. So finally, the day has come. And I'm really glad to be able to wish you all welcome to this event. Because it is really interesting, the fact that Norway and Mexico has served so many times on the UN Security Council at the same time. And that these two countries share so many um, thematic interests. Um, when Ambassador Canciola arrived this morning, he said that he was disagreed a little bit with the way... Uh, the event invitation was formulated, referring to Mexico and Norway as small states. <laughs> so I, I guess you will talk more about this in, in your introduction, how you uh, <laughs> regard uh, our respective countries. As Henrik said, we have Ambassador Conchola here and we have Ambassador Mona Yul. I think both of them, at least in the diplomatic community, is quite well known, but we have other participants here too. So I think I will just spend a few minutes on introducing the two of you, who you are and, and your background. 
So I will start with Ambassador Mona Yul. She is one of Norway's most seasoned ambassadors. She has just returned from New York, where she served, I believe, for four years, four and a half years, uh, as Norway's permanent representative to the UN. And during this peri period, uh, she was also elected as the 75th president of the Economic and Social Council. That was back in July 2019. Before her posting in New York, she was Norway's ambassador to the UK from 2014 to 2019. And she joined the Norwegian Foreign Service already back in 1986. In Norway, she might be, in the public at least, uh, best known for her involvement in uh, the no negotiations or the facilitation of the negotiations that led to the Oslo uh, Agreement back in, in 1993. Ambassador Yule has also worked as State Secretary in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs from 2000 to 2001, during the first government of Jens Stoltenberg, before she was appointed ambassador to Israel in 2001. Between 2005 and 2010, she served as deputy head of mission at Norway's permanent mission to the UN in New York. So she's been in New York before, uh, where she chaired the first committee that deals with issues related to international security and disarmament. So she has a broad experience. And then Ambassador Conchola. You, uh, has be, you have been a career diplomat since 1993 and currently serves as ambassador of Mexico to the Kingdom of Norway. He holds a law degree from the National Autonomous University of Mexico and an MALD from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. His previous foreign postings include the permanent mission of Mexico to the UN in New York, in Vienna and Geneva, as well as ambassador to the Islamic Republic of Iran. In Mexico's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, he acted as Deputy Legal Advisor, the Director General for the UN System, Director General for International Bilateral Relations and Economic Cooperation, as well as President of the Foreign Service Board. He also served as Director General for International Affairs of the National Human Rights Commission of Mexico and Acting Executive Secretary. As part of his multilateral background, Ambassador Conchola has been a member of the Mexican delegations to negotiations on ocean affairs, climate change, desertification, biodiversity, non-proliferation and disarmament, terrorism and migration and a number of other issues. So you can tell that we have two very, very experienced uh, ambassadors here today to talk about the UN Security Council and multilateralism. So I think I'll just invite Mona Yule first to come and give your talk. Uh, our plan is for both of you to talk for about 10 minutes each. Then we will have a small conversation before we then move on to two experts. Uh, I will introduce the two experts uh, later on. So Mona Yule, please. Thank you so much, uh, Turin, and thank you to Priya for, uh, uh, for inviting uh, me uh, to speak at uh, this very, very interesting, uh, I would say, event. Um, and uh, a very good morning to, uh, to, to all of you for coming, up, coming out this, uh, this morning to listen to, to, uh, to us. Um, it is indeed, I think, a, a, a very interesting uh, uh, topic, uh, especially uh, 
related to uh, the what we call not the non-permanent member but the elected member of, of, of the United Nations Security Council. And I, I, I will say a, um, a few things um, about that. Um, uh, just uh, starting with uh, what uh, I would call the class of 21-22, Norway and Mexico, um, had uh, to suffer, uh, I was about to say, during uh, our, our, our two years in the, in the Security Council. And I think there are there are, are two main sort of um, events or characteristics that sort of really made uh, a heavy mark on, on, on our uh, term in, in, in the council. First, of course, the pandemic, uh, and secondly, the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. Just a few words uh, about the pandemic. For, uh, for, for, for the two of us, both Mexico and ourselves, we started out in, uh, in, in January 2021, and it was almost a full uh, closure and lockdown of, of, New, no, of New York. To the extent that the first, uh, for the first half year almost, and for the first few months, um, I was sitting not in, of course, in front of, uh, of a screen, and, and it was virtual, but we couldn't even do it in the office, so I have no possibility of consult meeting my, my, my colleagues. I was sitting in my house in front, and I had to be alone there conducting meetings of the Security Council. And you can imagine, and it was not until... June or no, May June that we started to go back into into the council with restricted the numbers of people being in the room with a screen though one you can see through but a screen between us with uh, with the masks and all this and to put that very simply in in my view at least I mean diplomacy and uh, and uh, and pandemic is also almost sort of a contradiction in terms i mean you you can't be a diplomat you can't use the toolbox that you have as a diplomat if you don't meet with your colleagues so you can imagine that was pretty pretty challenging and uh, and it was also the case that actually meetings then that we had virtually were not even formal meetings because it had never happened before so the there were no procedures for these kinds of meetings. So it's, it's actually no records of those meetings because, uh, I mean, at least no any formal. So, I mean, it was a huge sort of... Uh, <laughs> challenge, not only for those of us who were not able to sit and meet with our colleagues, but also uh, with, uh, with, uh, for, for, for the UN itself. Um, and of course, it, it affected the, uh, the, uh, the, the transparency, the uh, accountability, the, uh, the, 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 the visuality of, of the UN in a sense that, uh, of course, the, the, the meetings were sort of screened, and, uh, but but still, I think it it made sort of uh, life very very much more, more more difficult for for all of us. And uh, even though decisions were made, um, but but with very complex uh, procedures and, and and done in a very different way that uh, it would otherwise be. 
then when that started to sort of to I was about to say go over and we started to 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 be able to to meet uh, regularly and 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 to do the kind of work that we were were there to do the russian in, in invasion came and of course made the the, uh, the 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 polarization that has that that is always there and has been there and uh, in the security council but of course made this political uh, uh, situation um, very much uh, uh, different and more more polarized polarized and more difficult to to work out uh, compromises then for us then, just to add that before I go on, for, for, for us as Norway, and I think I can speak on half of Mexico as well, for us then it was incredibly important to make sure that despite the fact that that um, uh, the Security Council, one could say in a sense, was paralyzed by the Russian veto on, on, on the war in Ukraine. For us, it was incredibly important, and I would say especially two things, that we were able to have regular and almost two and three times a week at the time meetings on Ukraine so that the Ukrainians themselves could sit at around the same table and get their story out and we could all listen to the Russian storytelling that became more and more ridiculous the more it's being exposed to the, to the whole world. And it, it, we need to remind ourselves that the Security Council is the only place still where all those countries are sitting around the same table. There is no other place where Ukrainians, Russians, US, uh, uh, you name it, are at the same table. So the, meet, the value of those meetings itself, where we were able to put the focus on uh, the humanitarian situation, um, the, um, the, the, the nuclear risk, the refugee situation, I mean, all kinds of aspects of this terrible war and, and, and get that message uh, through to, um, uh, to the Russians. Another important factor for us was to make sure that the council then was not paralyzed on all the other issues. I mean, we we had to make sure that we could find a um, solution on all the other um, uh, 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 other issues. So, so that's what we then were when we then were suddenly faced with the situation that. Um, that uh, the, the the P5s, you know, that normally actually speak speak to each other, they they they, they didn't do that. The P5s were not in a position to to uh, to, or they didn't want to um, to speak to each other, which made sort of open up. Uh, I would say paradoxically, and 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 maybe for for the wrong reason, but more space for. The elected member to 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 get uh, things done and to make sure that there were not uh, a paralyzed situation. I can come back to um, uh, to ex examples later on, but um, uh, the elected members and their role in the Security Council uh, has always been a very very important part, both of of 
when we have had the privilege of ourselves serving there, but also to help other uh, and, and, and to join forces with elected members to make the elected members stronger. Um, uh, and we have been always uh, uh, preoccupied to make sure that that the outside world knows more what is going on in the in the council, more accountability, more visibility, more transparency of the work of the Security Council. Because, if I may say so, the big power or the I'm not saying the big power, but they, because their Mexican comes in, but the permanent members they have a tendency to want it to deal with issues a little more. Uh, less on the um, uh, out in the uh, uh, for the outside. So also then, when we were a member again together with Mexico, we we really tried to 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 coordinate more the um, the uh, the elected member, the E10 as we call them, uh, the our positions. We tried to find a way where we could sort of go to, to together and say, now this is actually not only uh, come back to the pen holder, but not only a pen holder uh, uh, text is all the E10 is supporting. And that actually happened with this cross-border resolution um, bringing uh, humanitarian assistance into Sir Syria that we managed. And, and I know for a fact that that made an impression that all the E10s were stood behind. And as seems to be a lot of experts around here know that you, you, you need uh, ten, uh, 10 votes to get anything through the, at the Security Council. And uh, and uh, and the, the Secretary General always calls us calls us the uh, the six we to power because we, if we unite we have the uh, um, uh, the majority. So so uh, yeah, strengthening the role of the elected members was uh, was something that we gave a lot of priority uh, on. We worked very hard both for ourselves but also for other elected members to to have what we the, the pen holdership. That means that the country that uh, that drafts the resolution and that is a very very important thing to hold the pen means a lot in order to get uh, to get uh, uh, things through and uh, and normally it's that this pen holder thing is is being shared by by uh, by the p5s but increasingly more elected member uh, get the pen and now we have also together with our african the a3 the african friends on the council been very eager to see also the african hold pen especially at least the co-pen together with uh, with the P5, especially on on African uh, uh, conflict uh, um, situation, we. We also managed to then to have a kind of a monthly chairmanship of the of the E10, uh, where we coordinated our position. We had like the P5s, traditionally has had a, um, a, a monthly lunch with the Secretary General. All the E10s have, we had ours. Um, we tried to coordinate more press uh, statements, press stake, stakeouts, and 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 really, I think during at least that's my experience. Um, during those two years, the E10's role sort of became uh, stronger, which I think is a very important uh, 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 part of, um, of of sort of the working methods of, of the Security Council. But like um, like uh, like Turin referred to, it's it's not uh, the E10 is not only small states. And mind you, we were sitting together with Mexico, Brazil. 
in the uh, I mean, we are not talking about no, and and Saint Vincent and the Grenadines, the first uh, with 175 inhabitants, for instance. So, so the E10 is not a homogeneous group, mind you. But then, when we then manage to work together, then it's really uh, um, quite um, quite powerful, I would say. Um, so, uh, f f for us, then both and. Uh, in, in particular, then after the uh, the, uh, the Russian invasion, we, we we were in a situation where we both we had the pen so-called on on may, um, um, getting a, a new mandate of uh, UNAMA, the uh, UN presence in Afghanistan, which at the time then that also happened after the Taliban takeover and then after the Russian uh, invasion. So we were honestly quite nervous. How could we get all 15 members to agree on a strong mandate for, for Afghanistan with uh, women's rights, human rights, I mean, all the elements that we thought was important to have in there. And that, because the mandate was supposed to be renewed on the 17th of March, uh, so right after February. But we managed. But that meant that we had to sit down and negotiate directly with Russia. I mean, we couldn't then say, no, we are boycotting you because of what you did, because we had to bring them in. Um, and with w w w with the other mem members. The, the, the same happened, of course, as I mentioned, the, the Syrian cross-border resolution. We, we did that two times before um, to re review that, that mandate. The two times before, it was actually made a little back, if I may say so, backroom deal between Russia and the U.S., um, the last time in July, last uh, uh, no, in 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 January last year, we had to do it ourselves. So we were sitting because the Russian says, no, the U.S. said we are not talking to them. So we had to do it. So it made it <laughs> very much more 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 challenging, but it meant also that we managed to get the result. And and actually, if you look at the numbers, there were no no real no less decision made, no no less mandates being uh, um, well, mandated. I was about to say than than before before the uh, um, the war. So so that meant that when people say, "Oh no, the Security Council is." cannot do anything. It, it's, it's working, but of course we would have liked to see it work also uh, better. On Norway and Mexico, I can, uh, I'm sure uh, uh, the ambassador will, uh, uh, will, uh, um, will come back to that, but I think, I think speaking about like-mindedness, I think we, uh, we have exactly the same voting patterns, pattern on all the, uh, the, uh, the, the resolution, all the decision made. We, Norway and Mexico, always voted uh, the same. We worked very closely on women, peace and security. Um, I will, and I will just mention in the end what was <coughs> extremely uh, important and that was that uh, quite a unique uh, initiative that the Mexico and Norway took in order to have the council agree on I mean, we would have liked to have a resolution, but, but we got the next best, which is a presidential statement, encouraging the Secretary General to use his good offices uh, in uh, in Ukraine or in 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 the war, because we all know the situation of the UN and the. Secretary 
uh, it was it's very difficult for for him in that situation and of course it was hard to get Russia and others to agree on on, on such an initiative but we managed and it's still the only one only product as we call it from the from the Security Council that uh, that that it was possible to get an agreement on and I mean, we don't take all the credit, but uh, but that was sort of a little start of the Secretary General's uh, uh, engagement on on the Grain Deal, as we all know. Sad fact that that is <laughs> not functioning right now, but it, it it gave him sort of a little backing from the Security Council to go in and see what could be done in order to make. Uh, and so so we we got a lot of. Um, lot of uh, credit, I think, about Norway and Mexico for having sort of taken that uh, 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 that initiative, and I think that that's a very good example for what two countries from different regions, but with the same sort of same attitude, same approach to multilateral diplomacy. I'll stop there. I'm sure I'm taking too long. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Ambassador Yule. I will now then uh, give the floor to Ambassador Conchola. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you, first of all, to Prio for, for um, co-organizing this event and for accepting the provocation. Uh, I actually deemed this, this event as a show precisely of one of the elements that we shared with, with Norway, namely preventive diplomacy. In our common endeavors, we've agreed to keep fostering this kind of approach. So while being here, we are sharing not only with civil society, with acad academicians, with fellow diplomats, our experiences, our perspectives, and uh, our reflections. And in this regard, I am very much honored to be sharing today's panel with, with Ambassador Mona Yul, a very seasoned diplomat. Um, on my side, uh, well, I, I've, been, I've been participating in a lot of multilateral fora, um, and that prompted as well the, uh, the curiosity of taking a closer look about Mexico and Norway participating as elected members. And you may think that this is just a small nuance, talking or referring to, to permanent, non-permanent members as elected members. But again, this gives you a sense of another aspect that we share with Norway, and that is the democratization of the UN systems. We've been, for the third time, elected members. Now, if I may complement what uh, Ambassador Mona Jewell just mentioned uh, at the beginning of, of, uh, of this panel, she has dwelt indeed in the what I call the vertical um, the vertical perspective regarding the last participation of both countries. Um, may I propose an horizontal approach? I would like to dwell a little bit on the historical context and what we've done before. Indeed, as, uh, as Prio Director was mentioning and uh, Torun was also mentioning, this is the third time that we are together as elected members in the Security Council. But um, if you take a look, a closer look at the previous two times, you'll find first that um, those were at different times in the UN Council as such. For instance, that was 1980, the time of Cold War. 
Then we were together 2002, an era that I would call the, um, the post-9-11 uh, um, period. And now 2021 and 2022, which I haven't come up with, a, with a, an accurate description, how can we characterize this period? Probably paralyzation, probably um, uh, the emergence again of the, of the geopolitics in the council. Let me go a little bit further. Uh, Mexico and Norway have been in the council five times. Out of those five times each, three we've been together. Out of these three times together, we've been in the first two sharing the same room for country as strategic as Norway to us as we are to them. Uh, from a broader perspective, well, Mexico has been um, considering all in all the existence of the Security Council. We've been there participating 15% of the time, and we are aiming at increasing that participation. Unfortunately, I couldn't find the, the, the number for Norway, but I, I guess that it would be in the realm, in the, several, in the similar realm, 15%. And I'm only mentioning this because this also reflects the impact that we both are aiming at having in the works of the Security Council. Why am I trying to portray the, the different um, periods of the Security Council? Because I think that when we are talking about challenges, we must bear in mind the context in which we are operating. Um, just let me fine-tune what I mean by... Uh, characterization of the different epochs of the Security Council. I at least can identify five different periods. The first one, the post-World War II, which was really a time that comprised the years 1946-1947. There was like a brief period of illusion where we thought that the UN Charter would be able to deliver, but it didn't take that long to realize that we were stuck with the veto power. I may add here that ever since um, drafting, um, Mexico for one has been arguing against the veto power. And unfortunately, 1947, 19, so, sorry, 1946, 1947, um, bear witness to that fact. Just remember that back in 1950, the General Assembly adopted this famous resolution 377, which called for the action of the General Assembly in case that the, the Security Council was paralyzed, the Union Pro, Pro Peace Resolution. But then if we move, uh, move um, to the second period, the Cold War period, that began in 1947 and ended in 1991. 1991 was the dismemberment of the former uh, Soviet Union. So that was, roughly speaking, the, the, the second period, the Cold War period. The third period is what I call the reactivation period that goes from 1990 to 2000. And it was as if we have just discovered the, the UN Charter and the Security Council. I know that uh, Professor Cedric was in New York during that time, so probably um, he would not let me lie that that was a period where 
were really the international community was finding that the the charter worked somehow as the experience with the with Iraq the first Gulf War demonstrated at least in my perspective based on a study uh, we realized that the, the chapter 7 was working but in a very paradoxical way without providing the expected results and then of course began the um, the the um, let's say, the activism of the Security Council, especially in peacekeeping operations and the establishment of sanctions committees. Then we had the, the fourth period, the 9-11 period. Um, after the, the terrorist attacks in, the, in, in New York, Washington, and something that really strikes me is the date because just a few months before we held in South Africa, by the way, uh, a world summit on, uh, on, um, against um, discrimination and uh, in favor of tolerance. And just a couple of months later, we saw in the, on the TV the hours of a, new, of a new period. And that post-9-11 period really, really... Um, uh, reactivated, or more than reactivated, began to show that the Security Council was be beginning to act ultra vires, namely going beyond the initial uh, mandate that was given, both legis in legislative, legislative, in legal terms, or legis as a le legislator, sorry, and as an executor. Um, and then, of course, the f uh, this period goes between 2001 to 2014 to 2015. Why I mention this? Because 2014 was invasion or the annexation of Crimea by the Russian Federation. And 2015, because it was the end of the JCPOA with Iran. And then, of course, the, the last and the current period is the re return to geopolitics, that I dated back from 2016 to nowadays. Now, how was our participation back in those years? In, 19, in 1980, Mexico and Norway were part of the, of the Security Council. On the side of Mexico, because of a curious situation, um, two members of our region tried to get the seat at the Security Council. And after 154 round of votes, there was no agreement. So there was uh, a compromise and Mexico was selected or identified as a consensus candidate. So that's why Mexico was back in 1980. Um, what happened in 1980? Well, again, as reference, we were in the midst of the Cold War area. That was just a few months after the Russian invasion in Afghanistan. And that was a year in which the Iraq-Iran war began. So in such a turbulent context in the middle of the Cold War, the way in which both countries could maneuver was very, very rigid because back then it was more this perception of the areas of influence that was playing a key role in the, in the council. Then we got together back in 2002. To me, this is a very, very appealing context because that was a period not only after the uh, reactivation of the Security Council, but it was the 9-11. Just a couple of months ago, 
the Security Council established, well, adopted Resolution 1373 that established the Counterterrorism um, Committee. And then a couple of years later, in 2004, we would be establishing, or the Council would be establishing the um, 1540 Committee on, on Non-Proliferation and Disarmament. So 2002 was, again, one year after, or a couple of months after the, the, um, the attacks on, on um, the terrorist attacks in the U.S. And, um, and also, uh, sorry, um, that was um, the terrorist, terrorist attacks in, in New York and, and Washington. And again, this reactivation and proliferation of the activity of the Security Council. Um, there, Mexico and Norway just spent one year. Um, the, the only thing that I, I'm still owing you, I tried to, to finish my research, go into the detail how many, uh, how many resolutions um, we adopted. Well, for sure in 1980, we adopted 22 resolutions. In um, 2002, it was 67 res resolutions. If, if we compare that with the year in which the Security Council adopted the most number of resolutions, that was 1994, which was, what, what, which was about 72, 73 resolutions. So, again, you can see the, the activity within the Council. Um, but back then, we were beginning to see this, um, this proliferation within the Security Council of uh, subsidiary bodies. Because back then, in the previous, in the previous decade, we saw a great activism in, in growing peacekeeping operations, as I was saying, but also in, um, in sanctions committees. But in 2002 or beginning 2001, it was incredible to see the development of subsidiary bodies within the UN system. And when we come to talk about challenges, well, as uh, coming elected members the next time, we face the challenge of being well-versed regarding these working methods in the, in the Security Council. Um, and then again, of course, what I've already mentioned, the current, the current uh, period, 2021-2022, um, where the Council adopted some, um, something around 111 resolutions. Um, on the side of Mexico, we promoted, we promoted either... Um, either as an as a elected member or jointly, 11 resolutions. Out of the E10, that makes 40% of the resolutions adopted, uh, more or less 5% of the total amount of resolutions adopted in the same period. Um, we work quite closely with, with Norway's, as we've done before. Again, if I may go back in history, uh, our, our relationships in terms of common interest dates back not only from well 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 back I'll trace back to the to the UN system um, where we shared uh, perspectives and positions when the when the General Assembly adopted resolution 1803 regarding the, the sovereign um, the permanent sovereignty of our natural resources then of course in the era of decolonization and then, of course, in the, in the years of, of the Law of the Sea Convention. So, as you can see, I mean, briefly speaking, in a nutshell, Mexico and Norway, they both have a history of their own. 
sharing interest and sharing agenda, as Ambassador Mona Yul was saying, um, I cannot think of any, any topic or any vote where we've had any difference, not only in this last term, but also during the, during the debates in the General Assembly um, and even the, in the Council of Human Rights, um, by the way. So that really gives us strength in order to keep promoting this, this agenda. Um, just listening to what um, Ambassador Monayul was saying, and probably that would be part of our discussion right now when, when faced with the pandemic and, of course, with the Ukraine crisis, but the pandemic really uh, set a challenge to member states, and I wonder whether that would help us shake a little bit the uh, paralysis in the, in the Council from the perspective of the rules of procedure. You know that for the last, how many years, 80 years, the Security Council has been operating under provisional rules. So, of course, everything is provisional. We are here in this world provisionally, but um, hopefully this kind of changes, how do we operate in the context of a pandemic, would be a very good excuse or a very good reason why to amend the, um, the, the provisional uh, rules of procedure of the Security Council. Then again, I'll stop here. Just um, I, I hope I, I was able to, to give you, in a nutshell, a perspective of where do we come from. And of course, we can dwell on the experiences, experiences that we both have had in the context of this participation. Um, I mainly remember, because I was um, then um, Deputy Director General for the Security Council, when, we're, when we were back in 2002-2003, the Iraqi crisis, that was, that was something that is worth commenting on further on this debate. But uh, then again, thank you for the opportunity and looking forward for the debate and for the exchange of ideas and comments. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador. Uh, I'm thinking maybe you can just find your seats on the podium. Uh, and in the interest of time, I think we'll move straight on to introduce the, the experts so they can also join you on the podium. So we'll have... Uh, a discussion between all four of you. I think we'll start out with you, Louise. Um, uh, Louise Olson, she is a senior researcher and research director here at the Peace Research Institute. And before she joined PRIO, she uh, was the head of studies for the undergraduate education at the Department of Peace and Conflict Research at Uppsala University. And she has also been a specialist in gender equality issues and senior advisor at the Folkebernadotte Academy in Stockholm, Sweden. And she has a broad experience also in teaching and training about women, peace and security related matters, uh, training also the military and the police in, in Sweden. And she holds a, a PhD from Uppsala uh, on the topic of gender equality and UN peace operations in Timor-Leste. And in recent years, she's been either leading or she's been part of uh, several projects looking into the role of elected members in the UN Security Council their maneuverability, their impact, and so forth, and looking specifically at, uh, at Sweden and Norway. And so, Louise, please, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you. And uh, also, thank you for two great uh, presentations. I, I think you, you have sort of... Uh, I'm going to step back and, and uh, uh, sort of draw on, on two research projects on elected members, one together with the Nordic Africa Institute in uh, Uppsala, together with Angela Mumbo-Selström, uh, and one also funded by the Norwegian MFA, uh, together with Patti Chang, Anna-Marie Obermeier and Bitte Einen. Uh, and I think uh, what we have done there is try to structure 
to, to, to sort of outline how we can think around role and impact and also make it more possible to compare and, and trace uh, over time. But I, I think before I start that, I just want to, to tie into something that, that is an important aspect in research, but uh, and, and that goes to sort of understanding which phase you are in as an elected member at each time. So, of course, how you can work for impact and what role you can have will, of course, partly be set by the conditions of the council. So I think your, your two complementary presentations really gave us a really good understanding uh, of that. And I think also in terms of the elected members uh, being elected by the General Assembly, now we're in a phase with, with tensions geopolitically but also in a different sort of setting in terms of, of using that role more specifically. So I think that also really goes into to the context that I'm going to talk about. Uh, now we can change the... Yes, thank you. Um, so sometimes I hear the argument that the council is just talk and words, so therefore the council is not important. But I think that uh, in the council context, more often words and the lack of words, uh, I think you illustrate, is really a question of life and death. So I think it's good for us to remind ourselves that the decisions in the Security Council and the negotiated uh, effects that they have on a conflict really affect conflict uh, affected populations. It, it provides the mandates to those negotiating peace or trying to, to create peace, like through peacekeeping. So it, it is really a, a decision that have a very concrete uh, effect on the ground. Uh, and sometimes when you listen to the debate, it is uh, sort of that we, we, we tend to forget that, that research actually shows that the Security Council have a direct and dampening effect on conflict behavior, and that the fact that the legitimacy of the Council is now decreasing will have consequences for people around the globe. So if the Council was an animal, I think it would be fair to portray it as a workhorse more than a unicorn, right? So the impact we are talking about here is more day-to-day struggles and work rather than the glamour and symbolic acts. And those are the, the consequences that then appear uh, on the ground. But of course that also places a bit of a, a problem for members in the council in terms of showing what you actually do, since most of it are sort of concrete contribution to day-to-day -to -day negotiations. Uh, so in research, there's been a growing understanding that we have to think of the Security Council not as a unitary actor. Right? So it's more uh, in, in terms of negotiations. But that doesn't mean, mean then that if the Council is like an institutional platform for a range of continuous negotiations, then um, even if it's an asymmetrical platform, does that mean that we can then expect individual countries such as Norway and Mexico to sort of single-handedly solve a conflict on the council's agenda, or to push its interest on someone else. Well, I think that's difficult, if not impossible, even for the permanent members, right? So the, we have to think of impact in terms of the of the day-to-day -day, uh, sort of negotiations. So, in that way, that I think then it's important to 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 sort of break down this uh, how we think around what kind of impacts that and roles that the council, the members have. Next slide, please. So what we have tried to do is then uh, outline uh, sort of some key processes where elected members can seek to have an effect. Uh, first, they can seek to affect the norms. And um, by norms here, we mean how the council actually understands its responsibilities and the, the things that they are responsible for. It has a very broad but fairly open uh, mandate, maintaining international peace and security. So what we put into that interpretation becomes very important. 
Now, one way that uh, members can, uh, can do this is, for example, try to increase visibility and understanding of the mandate uh, by holding high-level debates or by creating area formula meetings if, if something is too sensitive to be discussed directly in the council. Uh, or you can, if there is a possibility, also negotiate sort of thematic resolutions that give us more specific content to a certain aspect of the mandate, such as the examples here on women, peace and security. Uh, and many elected states, as you have seen, have been precedents and championing the adoption of thematic resolutions in order to, to, to make the, the council more sort of adapted to, to the world in terms of addressing sort of serious uh, problems. And as we could, uh, like the example 2538 that was championed by Indonesia, that actually gathered an alliance of over or around 100 states inside and outside the council. And that is also something we see, the, the connection between the General Assembly and, and the Security Council in order to hold it accountable. Second, uh, elected states can also seek to affi uh, affect the process. Uh, as I think was very well uh, highlighted, uh, the P5 may disagree on everything else, but they tend to agree on the working methods and that things are fine as they are. And therefore, the elected members have really sought to try to, to create a, a different interpretation of the working methods to, to try to make these more inclusive and more responsible to, to a broader setting. Uh, for example, through changing, as uh, Mona Jule exemplified, the uh, uh, penholder situations, for example, uh, but also in terms of the, uh, providing better information to the Security Council through the informal expert group on women, peace and security that Mexico uh, was, uh, was chairing. So to try to, to improve the way that the council is working, but also make it more responsible. Thirdly, uh, elected members can also seek to have a direct impact in terms of how a specific conflict situation is handled to try to make it more possible to reach the outcome on the ground that uh, you would like to see. Now, one way to do this is to, to try to negotiate new criteria into sanction regimes. For example, sexual violence uh, should be better addressed in, in UN sanctions. Or to uh, make a resolution of higher quality, so make it more implementable. So Norway strove very strongly to, to create language that, for example, is possible to translate into actions on the ground uh, on women, peace and security. So sort of the, the combination between better information and then direct implementation. Uh, and I think that uh, I will give you two examples, our data in terms of uh, what that uh, has looked like. If you look at the period between 2015 and 2021, which is, is data that we have collected. So it is difficult as a researcher to say that, well, this country is specifically responsible for that and this country is specifically responsible for that, considering that we are talking about contributions to larger processes. But one time when the researchers can uh, sort of get an, uh, at least a glimpse of the, the different contribution is when a country is holding the presidency. Uh, and one of the areas where uh, I know that Mexico and Norway both have, have worked uh, is to improve the gender balance in terms of the representation. And that is something that is, should be part of the Security Council, but perhaps haven't lived the way it should uh, over time. Uh, but as we can see, there's great variation between the uh, representation of, uh, I think, uh, women are the, so the, the full line and, and men are the dotted line, the briefers that have then been invited to the Council to provide information on how a specific issue should be 
understood. And Sweden was actually the first country that had an even balance between male and female briefers, but as we see, many of the elected states uh, towards the latter part of this uh, period have really striven hard to, to improve and uh, to have a better uh, gender balance. Although we can also, of course, see the effect of the pandemic there, uh, but that is the drastic decrease in, in briefers overall. The second uh, uh, example I would like to give is then how do we then think around improving the quality of the outcomes of the Security Council so they actually get this effect. So we move from the talk to the actual action. Uh, and if you look at women, peace and security, one of the uh, aspects that countries have really sought to, to drive forward is to make the language go from very generic, such as saying, please consider WPS, to saying, if you are working to support an elected process in this particular setting, women should be better integrated, for example, supported to be, take part in participation uh, in the election. So make the language more specific. And as we can see, uh, this has been improving over time. So by 2021, the specific references actually surpassed the, uh, the generic. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, it is important to try to break down and look at the impact, because many of the elected members have them in parts of driving this process forward, because, of course, each term for an elected member is just two years. So you also have to have some continuity and sort of build on each other's work. So sort of, and we also seen that in the elected member cooperation that you actually try to hand over so that you don't lose uh, progress. So now we're looking forward to Slovenia and uh, eventually Denmark, I think, in terms of, of picking up particularly on women, peace and security. Thank you. Thank you so much, Luis. You can just find your, your seat on the podium. And we will come back to, uh, to some of the issues that you brought up. Uh, it's now a pleasure for me to introduce our next expert, uh, which is uh, Cedric de Kooning. He is a research professor in peace and conflict studies at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, also known as NUPI, where he co-directs the Center on UN and Global Governance, leads a climate peace and security project, and coordinates the effectiveness of peace operations research network. And he is also a senior advisor for Accord in South Africa. There's a lot I could say about you, Cedric. Um, <laughs> should I keep it short? Well, I, I could add, uh, since we are now focusing on the UN, that you, among the many things you've been doing, you have served as an, in advisory capacities for the UN, um, including the UN Secretary General's Advisory Board for the Peace Building Fund. But you have also been working very closely in various capacities with the African Union. Um, and you have co-edited 10 books, of which the most recent two are on adaptive mediation and adaptive peace building, which I guess is building also on your PhD um, and your core uh, field of expertise in your professorship. Uh, I think you are going to address uh, the issue of climate, peace and security, right? Uh, so please, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Turin, and uh, good morning, everyone. Lovely to be with you this morning and with our fellow panelists. Uh, I think uh, what everybody has said so far has really set the context for what I thought I would talk about, which is one specific example, and namely Norway's role in the area of climate, peace, and security during its last period as an elected member of the Security Council, because it was one of four priority areas. It hasn't been mentioned much up to now, but it's actually, I think, a very interesting example of where a very focused effort in a very specialized field can enhance the agency of a relatively small country and an elected member beyond what you would expect. 
I know a little bit about it because uh, I lead a project at NUPI uh, together with uh, CIPRI where we have been supporting this work of Norway and the Security Council by providing research on specific countries on the agenda of the Security Council and the interlinkages between climate, peace and security or rather climate change and peace and security in, in those countries. And as Ambassador Yule has explained, this was a very difficult period in the Council for a number of reasons. But on this particular topic, there's also quite a strong pushback or difference in, in opinion among a number of countries. So the vast majority of countries, there was a resolution, a thematic resolution on this topic, which I think had 126 countries uh, that uh, signed up to support the resolution which I think was the second highest in the history of, of the UN. But uh, this resolution didn't pass at the end because it was vetoed by Russia and India also voted against it. And so there's a, a number of countries, including Brazil and, and India, China, Russia, that is strongly opposed about uh, addressing climate change in the Security Council because they feel it's a topic that should be dealt with in uh, the uh, in other forums which are responsible for climate change, like the UNFCCC and the COP process and so on, and because they feel it's a, it's a situation that needs to be dealt with through developmental tools, not through peace and security. But Norway and the other countries that are active in this on this topic are, of course, not arguing that the Security Council should deal with climate change, but only that the Security Council should deal with the impact of climate change on peace and security, because the mandate of the Security Council is to maintain international peace and security. So this distinction is, is sometimes blurred, I don't know, consciously or sub unconsciously, but, um, but certainly this is part of the, the controversy around this topic. So despite this uh, very strong pushback and despite the fact that this resolution was vetoed in the end, um, the Council has still passed about 40 um, products, if you like, Security Council resolutions, presidential statements, and so forth, that deal with this particular topic. And I think Norway played a, a very strong role during its period on the Council in helping to ensure that language on, in specific resolutions where, let's say, the Council is dealing with a situation in Afghanistan or in Iraq or in Somalia or in Mali, where there's specific language related to uh, what the Council should be doing or what the UN operations that are deployed in those countries should be doing when it comes to climate, peace and security. So I think Norway played a very good role in making sure that that language is not eroded, although that was a very strong effort by some countries. Uh, but what I would actually highlight probably as the most important legacy in this area is that in, in November 2022, Norway and Kenya, who were both co-chairs of what was called the Informal Expert Group on Climate, Peace and Security, organized a, and hosted an area formula meeting where they changed the focus of the debate away from climate security, which was a focus around the threat that climate change poses for international peace and security, to a much broader perspective about how can we, a more solutions-oriented perspective about what can we do about this topic by better linking initiatives around peace building, climate adaptation, and climate mitigation. 
In other words, making climate mitigation and climate adaptation more conflict sensitive and more peace positive. In other words, how can we also use the work we do in climate adaptation and climate mitigation to build peace, to contribute to social cohesion, to contribute to resilience, which have a benefit both for dealing with conflict as well, of course, as for dealing with, with climate change. And I think it's a very interesting example because it speaks both to the normative aspect that Louise mentioned in terms of situating this agenda, um, making space for the importance of climate change, which is our most pressing challenge in our current era. The Russian war in Ukraine will end at some point, but are we going to still be dealing with climate change beyond that? Uh, so this is the overarching large issue that we have to deal with. So normatively placing that issue on the agenda, I think, was very important. But the example of the ARIA formula meeting is an interesting example of process. Um, and I think what we also saw during this period, not just by Norway, but many other countries on elected members in the Security Council, is the very innovative use of press statements, press stakeouts, social media, side events, and research, for instance, the research that, that we contributed, as ways of, of bringing attention, creating visualization of a topic that goes beyond just the formal dry role of negotiating in, in, in meetings about resolutions, although that is, of course, the hard work that, that Security Council members have to do as well. But I think this is an example of where a relatively small country like Norway, with a dedicated effort, had a considerable impact on this specific topic. And one last element that I would mention to that is that I think that what contributed to the success here is that Norway didn't keep its work only in the policy field, only in the area of the resolution, Security Council resolutions and, and the work of the Security Council. But it, at the same time, supported the larger field by working very closely with the United Nations uh, headquarters in the form of the climate security mechanism, but also various operations by, for instance, funding staff in the United Nations working on this topic, funding special advisors that were deployed to peace operations to help build the knowledge of those operations and to help build the capacity of those operations. So that link between practically doing things in the field on the ground and shaping the policies on the top, I think, is, is, was, very, was key to the success. And I'll end off with, with one last anecdote because, as Louise mentioned, sometimes it sounds very ridiculous that in the Security Council the diplomats are negotiating you know, about particular sentences and resolutions and the particular structure of that sentence and so on. But in our work accompanying this process, we were very surprised to see one example of how a slight tweak in the language made a big difference. For instance, uh, in our research on particular countries, we were working with, a, with South Sudan and reaching out to the UN mission in South Sudan, I think it was about in February 2021, to uh, engage them on and get their feedback on a fact sheet that we were developing on, on, on climate change and its impact on the conflict in South Sudan. And at that time, the UN mission kind of responded by saying, this is not our work, we are dealing with you know, important issues, humanitarian issues, protection of civilians, speak to someone else who's dealing with climate change. Uh, and that resolution that emanated out of that process only had, I would say, very slightly stronger language. 
And about six months later, we got a call from the UN mission in South Sudan to say, you know, based on this language that they've now revisited and orientated their work and realized that this is something very important for them, they called us back and said, we realize now that this is an important issue that we need to strengthen our work and can you help us by uh, giving us advice on how we can do that. So a very interesting example of how a very small change in a language can actually have a direct effect about how a UN peace operations manages this topic. Thank you, Tegan. I think um, this last example, uh, Cedric, um, also resembles quite a bit how Norway, at least, and probably also Mes Mexico has ad, uh, worked on, on the women, peace and security issue. I mean, being really flexible, creative, when you experience pushback, you look for different ways that you can maneuver, new alliances that you can build, and not least collaboration with, with civil society. Um, I was wondering, the ambassadors, with all this broad experience, the, the kind of analysis that Louise and, and Cedric now presented to you, does it relate to, to your work? Uh, do you feel that they have hit the nail? I don't know who would like to start. Maybe uh, Muna? Yeah, yes, please. And it's, it, it's on. And, it, and it's not to, uh, uh, to pay you compliment here, but I, I, uh, I, I really think that you, uh, that you hit the nail. Um, uh, I thought fir the first observation you, you made about there is always somebody in the receiving end even if it's just a formal meeting where we where we uh, make our, our our written statements is being being read out but i can assure you first of all that those statements are worked with every single uh, word and we involve the whole sort of the whole ministry from different angles. Our embassies are, are around, of course, especially on country specific, and 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 we use so much time on making sure that what we what we say is really uh, I was about to say grounded, but more importantly is that, uh, as I mentioned briefly, you know, all the, the meetings uh, of, the, of the UN um, Security Council is streamed, I mean, in, in, uh, uh, as we sit there. And I think especially one uh, feedback that we have got from this was from, from, from civil society and, and people of, of, of Myanmar. I mean, where the situation is so grave, the Security Council is, of course, not able to, uh, to, to, to agree on a resolution. We have worked very hard. We, first it was sort of just private meeting, then it was informal meetings, and we have even had, uh, we, we got a resolution in, in, in the end, but it's not as strong as we wanted, but it's still. But the fact that people on the ground, I mean, can listen, can see that at that table people care about us, they talk about us, they see us, and they see how much uh, uh, we suffer and can hear from from. So it is incredibly uh, important. And of course, what Cedric said as, as well about about I mean, just words in resolution, especially on mandates for peacekeeping operation. I mean, it's it's really <laughs> incredibly important what it's being in there. So it's not only words, it's about how the UN can operate and help people on the ground. And of course, that's why also this, 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 this mandate that we 
<coughs> we worked so hard on 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 on, on the Syrian uh, cross-border uh, humanitarian assistance in the northwest of Syria. I mean, we knew, and that was in the back of our head all the time. If we didn't get that agreement, we were talking about millions, 4.5 million civilians in in, uh, in 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 the northwest of Syria would would not get life-saving assistance. And that is actually the situation now because they failed last time when we were out. <laughs> Sorry to say so, but I mean it's so it is about I mean the daily life of people out there. Um I'm getting a little passionate about this. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's a very, very useful input from from civil society. <clears throat> and then again, reflecting on when was the first resolution of the Security Council passed on women peace, um, uh, the women peace agenda, correct me if I'm wrong, that was 2000. Mm -hmm. And the uh, Security Council didn't deal with that until 2015 again. Of course, there were a lot of, of reports, there were a lot of uh, work in the, in the GA, but as a political object of interest, it really took some time, which again talks about how the, the timing in the, in the UN procedures takes some time, uh, not necessarily the, with, the speed, with the speed that we would like to, to have. Then uh, on, on, the other, on the other side, taking about or reflecting on your presentation, Luis, of course, we can, we can make an impact in, in norms, in procedures, specifically, specifically regarding women peace. Um, what, we, what we did in the council, well, first, um, we promoted this idea of a trio for women, peace, and security. We began with, uh, with the chairmanships of, um, of, um, of uh, Ireland, Mexico, and Kenya, and then Norway uh, seconded that as well as, as well as other eight members of the council. And that gives continuity. That's uh, the other aspect that we've been referring here. And of course, by, by doing that, we try to impinge upon the, the process. In terms of, of norms, of course, we try to incorporate in the, in the review of the resolutions, in the implementation, what Ambassador Monayou was saying, how do we reflect the language taken from, from those resolutions and try to make them operative. Uh, I can think of also the, um, the visit that uh, Mexico organized in its uh, chairmanship of the council to Lebanon, just to, to see how the situation of women was at the field level. And of course, these two meetings organized with um, many uh, experts on the, on the topic to, to receive some feedback. I think the, the, um, this um, think tank or NGO the UN Security Report produced a very interesting report pondering the outcome of, of those initiatives and making some recommendations. So that talks a lot about the usefulness of this kind of feedback. If I may just briefly, just to, I, I know that we will be getting into what uh, Cedric was saying, but um, what I uh, omitted to, to mention about the challenges that we face as elected members is bearing in mind the, the errors that I was describing Today we are dealing with with um, with a climate where there is a, a change in the nature of conflicts. We are not talking about military conflicts. We are talking about internal conflicts with a lot of impact in civil in civilians. Um, the nature of conflict has been changing. So nowadays we are talking about multi-dimensional causes, and that prompted the idea, of course, of having a very proactive and preventive diplomacy. 
but also not only when I was talking about the proliferation of the of the activities of the Security Council or the machinery of the Security Council, but we've been watching also a change in the conception of such terms as, as peace and security or the right of self-defense. And that really is where I think the, the member countries, the elected countries, could make a difference, especially well, in the committees. We can go into detail about that. And well, I'll reserve one comment on your, on your presentation, Cedric, if I may. Thank you. Speaking of um, elected members taking on different roles, uh, we are, have a, a, a kind of a paradoxical situation, I think, because a lot of critics argue that uh, the Security Council has lost legitimacy. We have geopolitical tensions, so the Security Council does not really work. While at the same time, we see that seemingly there is increasing interest among the UN member states to be elected to the UN Security Council, especially in, in the group of Western states, at least. There is harsh competition. And I also uh, was supervising a student who looked into this, and she could clearly see that there has been an increase in interest. It's kind of a paradoxical situation. Do you think, uh, I, maybe an open question, or maybe you, Cedric, could, could respond to it first. Do you think the fact that there is... Um, this strong tension and may, maybe paralysis among the P5 opens up for you know, greater activism and more impact and a greater role for the elected members so that they, they can see that they, here's a window of opportunity to actually have real impact. I don't know, would you like to start, Cedric? Could be, could be a consideration. Um, and I do think, the, as Mona also said earlier, certainly I think there's more, it has created more room for, for elected members. I was thinking also of the example that uh, uh, of currently uh, in the area of climate, peace and security. A number of countries have, for instance, agreed that elected members, that during their presidential period that they are the president of the Security Council, they will have a, a signature event on climate, peace and security. And so that in that way, you have four or five elected members giving attention to the same thematic area. And in that way, you know, stronger create that norms around that. But I think the, the broader interest is simply that as a Security Council member, an elected member, you get this platform for two years where you can really present your interest and forward your interest and network with countries at a level that you do not normally have the opportunity for. So even in a Security Council that is under pressure for elected members, this is still a unique opportunity, and I think this is why they are pursuing that. Mm. Luis, you also wanted to comment on that. Yeah, and I think that also, I mean, there's a, a really interesting project in uh, at uh, Lund University where they have really like tried to track the, the voting records, and, and we see this great interest. And, and I'm, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, know that Mexico has been in, in part uh, sharing the sort of looking into how can the, the memberships of the Security Council be reconsidered. Uh, but in a sense, uh, it would be interesting to hear you reflect because there seem to be like two parallel interests or, or groups. One is the more geostrategic or geopolitical where larger states are requiring or, or asking for or demanding a seat at the council. Uh, and, and also uh, another track that is more talking about sort of more the democratization of the international community where more states should be better represented so more can have a voice. And those two are not easily reconcilable. So it would be interesting to hear reflect on how, how do you think this, how will this play out in a sense? Um, 
Thank you. Thank you. That, that's a very provocative question. Just one before that, just a note regarding the legitimacy of the UN Security Council and why we may be witnessing this interest of others to get into the Council. Well, ever since at least 1999, at least from my perspective, I've seen a divorce between what is legitimate and what is legal. If you think of situations like Kosovo or, or Libya, Libya, well, Kosovo getting into, into, um, into the conflict, I remember some, um, some, com uh, some politicians, uh, especially the, UK, the former UK former, um, or the former uh, prime minister, saying that we know uh, this is the right thing to do. So he was implying this is legi legitimate. It may not be legal. And that was the same thing that happened when uh, the Security Council or some countries decided to establish an off-fly zone over Libya. So what we're witnessing in the Council is this divorce between legitimacy and uh, legality, which is very, very dangerous. So I would take at least from, from the perspective of some countries, of course, for one, Mexico, is try to bridge that gap. And that's why we keep in, insisting on looking after the procedures and the regulations. For instance, there is a report on the implementation of uh, Article 51 of uh, self-defense. These are the kind of things that have, are not quite easily seen from outside the works of the Security Council, but where elected members could really have an impact because we're asking for accountability. The same thing goes with the adoption of this resolution on the, on the use of veto. Now that every time a, a member of the Security Council exerts a veto, the General Assembly could call a meeting to you know, inquire about what was the reason why the veto was, was used. Now, as, um, as for these different perspectives, well, we tend to think that the UN should be the most um, democratic, democratic worldwide forum where we all have a say. That's a little bit challenging because the uh, international community has been growing. Um, but then again, we think that we should have more of that representation and not repeat what we, uh, many of us, were not very uh, in, in agreement with when the UN was established. And I come back to the, to the veto. The solution would not be to grant this veto power to an ever-increasing number of permanent members. Would you like to add anything, Mona? I'll... I'll, uh, I'll Maybe not on uh, the discussion of uh, expanding or reform of the Security Council because that could go on for uh, forever. But just just a, just a small ref reflection on on the fact that I, I think it's a little like uh, I mean we, we love to hate the UN, but it's still sort of the the, the uniqueness of that organization we remains. I mean we. We can say that it's yeah, the council is paralyzed and can't do anything, and, but it is and, and the attraction, like you refer to, and your, I think your question is, is and it's interesting that it's even research based because you can feel that 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 it is more. I mean, the competition of getting in, getting a seat in the council, at the same time as people are saying, no, no, it's almost irrelevant. I mean, it doesn't really make sense. But so there is, there is interesting that it is. Uh, uh, but, uh, and of course, there are, there are different ways of getting in there than like, like you have that your regional uh, group, um, you are nominated, so you don't then, in the end, <laughs> so you don't need to compete. I mean, I think we had a historically 
difficult competition to get uh, to get in there with uh, with Ireland and Canada. I mean, like-minded countries in many many ways, and people were saying, "So why are why why are you competing with each other?" I mean, you are like you ask us to choose among our your our your siblings, and that's impossible because you are so like-minded. So so what does this matter then? Whether it's Canada, Ireland, and Norway, and then at least my 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 answer to that is only Norway that can represent Norwegian interests, mm. um, and I think that goes for many countries. And and the motivation for countries going in there could be sort of different. I mean, for us, the, our main motivation is to to go in and and, and defend the multilateral uh, system and 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 the international rule rule of law because that is our national interest. But of course, there could be other countries wanting to go in there to defend sort of a little more of a narrow self-interest, being in a conflict situation, or having having this this room as sort of their platform for pursuing their sort of maybe yeah more, more narrative interest. But it's an interesting um, discussion, and I think the, the UN and the Council will 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 re remain. It needs reform. Uh, I think the reform of the Council is still a long shot, but I'm. I know the Mexican position. <laughs> uh, time is really flying. Uh, we promised in the invitation that there will be a Q&A session. So I think we should we open up. We can allow for maybe two or three questions if someone has something burning. Don't be shy. Anyone? Yes, Ambassador? I'm uh, Ambassador of Korea. Uh, I highly thank you, that ambassadors and panelists, uh, for your wonderful and very informative presentation. I think this seminar would be quite, would have been quite uh, helpful and informative to our colleagues uh, at the Korean Permanent Mission in, in New York because Korea uh, was just elected um, as the uh, non-permanent non member of the uh, UN Security Council and then we are going to uh, start our um, activity uh, from uh, the uh, July, uh, January 1st in, uh, next year. Actually, uh, this term is our third term. Uh, the first one uh, back in 1996 uh, to 7, uh, in the midst of the reactivation period, as uh, 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 when I follow a year term. And then, second, uh, there was uh, 2014 uh, through 15, so by the end of also the post the 911 period. So at this third term, uh, we have now a very high ambition and expectation uh, and play our due part uh, as the uh, uh, United Nations uh, Secret Council elected members. As I heard you, um, uh, you have already mentioned many um, the stories and uh, episodes uh, that would be quite helpful uh, to, to us. Uh, if you allow me, um, uh, I'm going to ask uh, something about the, the, the uh, president's uh, president role. Actually, now the, the uh, every elected member uh, takes a presidency uh, in an alphabetical order. So, um, when you took uh, your uh, presidency, uh, what were uh, the, the biggest challenges in terms of the logistical, logistical or the substantial uh, front? Uh, 
uh, you might uh, have needed uh, uh, more diplomats or more budget or some specific arrangement with the United Nations Secretariat uh, from the logistic point of view. And then a substantial point of view, uh, many issues, not only uh, in the context of the small countries versus big countries, by our standard, Mexico and Norway are not uh, small countries at all. Uh, so uh, there may be uh, other uh, various dynamics, uh, for example, between um, elected members versus uh, the permanent members or uh, even within uh, the elected members uh, within E10 or the, the, between E10 and non-secretary member uh, uh, countries. So you might have uh, needed to take, on, uh, take them on board in many different issues. So uh, please. Maybe, Mona, you could start since you are the most recent uh, ambassador on, on the UN Security Council. Yeah, I, um, thank you. And I, I, I can assure you it is hard work and uh, even more hard work than you, than, than you can imagine because as president, you deal with every single big and small issues every i mean of course you have we, we didn't increase the number only for the for, for of um, colleagues only for the presidency but uh, we did it for the whole period but it's so many things you need to and 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 it's actually the president who decides based of course on the provisional rules of uh, of procedure and of course you have the secretariat to to guide you but there are so many issues you need to i mean who should be allowed to speak on the different uh, rules uh I mean, and all this thing about briefers and 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 everything. But it is also the months where you can then sort of, I mean, you command the agenda for the whole months. Many of the meetings are sort of mandatory that that sort of you have to do because there are monthly or bi-monthly or quarterly meetings that are in, or, or already decided upon. But then um, you, you then have the possibility to focus on issues important for your own country, it's the so-called signature events. Um, so we had uh, at least um, two of them, one on women, peace and security, where we, um, where we focused on, uh, on uh, protection of uh, women human uh, rights defenders very very important issue then we had another one on protection of civilians in urban warfare uh, which turned out to be even more relevant given the the, the Ukraine war um, where we had our prime minister and foreign minister and uh, and I think I think we really made made um, it's a unique opportunity to put sort of your uh, your and uh, your your priorities and and the, your point about the the, the <coughs> our communication then or our, our relation with other members of the EU but not least the civil society so on both of those two signature that we have um, arranged we worked very very hard on every single detail with uh, the um, the women peace and society um, bo bo both in New York civil society and 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 back home here and the same uh, especially with the ICRC. On, on protection of uh, of civilians, so it's really uh, a lot of hard work, but very rewarding, and it is very important to put uh, your your 
serious effort I- into that because, um, and I'll be talking to your colleagues in uh, in in, uh, in New York also about that. So uh, they they have, we have give them some good advice. <laughs> I see the time is up, but I I think we will allow ourselves a quick round uh, uh, with the panelists because of my my last question will focus more on the legacies uh, because now both Norway and Mexico has been on the Security Council. I think those of us who've been following your work uh, would agree that you have achieved quite a bit uh, on certain topics at least. So, Cedric, um, we start in the reverse order. What would you say are the main legacies? I don't know to what extent you have followed Mexico closely, but the two countries, what would you say are the main legacies? Well, I can speak to, to Norway and this topic that I mentioned about climate, peace and security. And I mentioned that through this ARIA formula meeting in November 2022, Norway and Kenya and the others supporting that managed to shift the narrative around the way climate, peace and security is discussed at the Security Council. And uh, it's interesting because it's one particular moment um, and subsequently that language has been adopted in in the United Nations uh, narrative in many different places. For instance, the Secretary General released a policy brief on the new agenda for peace in July this year, and the heading dealing with this topic is climate, peace and security. So it is very interesting to see how an initiative, one particular area formula meeting, actually has changed the language in this area. Um, I can think of <clears throat> at least two two legacies, one in the area of women, peace and security, namely all these meetings that uh, Mexico organized, particularly during its uh, presidency. Um, This initiative of the trio, in order to give continuity to this this analysis, um, the meetings with the civil society, the feedback that we received, the visits to the field level, all of them make an impact on the process as well as on the normative character of, of the council. Then another, another very important um, legacy is the work that we carried regarding commit, the, the Committee 1540. Under Mexico's presidency, we um, carried on a comprehensive work on the implementation of 1540, which, by the way, it's exactly an example of the kind of implications that the work of the Security Council has at the domestic level. This is, this is the kind of things that we normally don't see until we are faced with our own legislation. So I would say, at least quite briefly, those would be like two very important contributions in this, this time in the Council, and of course, fomenting, fostering the rule of law in, uh, in the UN procedures. With many things, and it might sound a little arrogant, but that's, I think we, we there, there have been very, very my, many highlights that I think uh, that uh, that is worthwhile. But I will not do that in, in uh, uh, given given the time. So I, I think I will just refer to a compliment that uh, that I got from. Uh, I think even several, but especially uh, from one of, uh, of my colleague that I really appreciate very much, and uh, and Hen said, um, "You have been the most principled member of the Security Council during your term." Please speak. 
Yeah, that's a tough uh, conclusion to follow. Um, uh, just to um, to start by saying that it, it's Gothenburg University, not Lund. Uh, but I, I think that also underlines some of the points that that we haven't touched on, but I think that we are representative of, and that is the uh, the good cooperation between researchers and policy and the MFA in terms of of trying to to both ensure good quality products well in the council and also following the impact after the council. And I think now as we are approaching the 25th anniversary of uh, WPS, where we talked about, as you pointed out, implementations in 2015, now we have tried different tools. We are seeing improvements in the data and we shouldn't lose that and we should maybe take this opportunity also to see how can we then assess this impact uh, specifically and cooperate uh, around that. Thank you so much. Thanks to all four uh, panelists and especially thanks to you, Ambassador Conjola, for, for initiating this. I think this was a very interesting event. We could have gone on for maybe more hours. <laughs> Thank you all for joining us here today and you are all most welcome back at other PRIO events. So just uh, keep watch out for w Twitter and our webpage and invitations you might receive in your inbox. So thank you all for coming. Thank you.